we come now <clears throat> we come now to the time in which we open up the word of god and today's um passage is principally out of the book of deuteronomy but the text that we're mostly focusing upon in terms of the message is 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 40. The verse that occurs at the very end of what happens at Mount Carmel, when you have the great showdown between the true God and the 450 prophets of Baal, as Elijah is the main prophet of God who is um, presenting the Lord's case against the prophets. So, verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the book Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, of course, this is the verse that comes at the end of um, the prayers by the 450 prophets of Baal that Baal would answer them that Baal would answer from heaven, and Baal failed to show up, failed to say anything, silence completely. And then Elijah calls upon the Lord, and the Lord answers with fire. And in the consummation of this, uh, Elijah judicially executes the 450 prophets of Baal. Now, to understand the actions of Elijah thoroughly, we need to turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning with verse 29, all the way through chapter 13. When the Lord God cuts you off before the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, 
entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you, and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire, and make search, and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who were in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of the open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. Let's pray. Father, there's no question as we come to this that to our very, very modern ears, uh, so um, jaundiced in so many ways against believing in absolute truth, uh, so unwilling in terms of the spirit of the modern age of accepting the fact that the Lord God omnipotent reigns over all and that all glory and honor is due unto you. Uh, we read such a passage as this. And it can cause us to wonder uh, about, Lord God, uh, is this really true? Is this really true? And yet, Father, uh, Jesus himself uh, reminded us that uh, the scriptures cannot be broken, that all the words of scripture will be fulfilled in him. And the Apostle Paul reminded us uh, that all scripture, uh, speaking specifically of the Old Testament scripture, all scripture is God-breathed profitable for teaching, reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, uh, we come to this passage, and we pray that we might understand more of you and more of your jealousy for your own name's sake, more of your concern, uh, Lord, uh, to keep us from the paganism that infiltrates our own culture, uh, to keep us from the idolatries of our lives that can cause us to be less than loyal and faithful to you, to encourage us again that the Lord Jesus came to enable us, to give us grace and life and new life so that we could worship and honor you as we should. In Christ's name, amen.
The title of this series that we are in right now is really The Triumph of God at Mount Carmel and the Defeat of Baal. That is to say, as we've been looking at um, chapter 18, this is actually the sixth message on this particular passage. And we've come to the last part of it, verse 40, which I have subtitled The Consequences of the Challenge. This is specifically verse 40, where Elijah says to the Israelites, who have now recognized that God is God, he has said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seize them, and then Elijah proceeds to judicially execute them. Now, as I begin, I want to point out something that um, is important in appreciating the significance of this passage. And really it goes back to something that we find in the Greek language in terms of two different versions of time, two ways in which time can be described. Uh, one is the Greek word chronos. Chronos. You, you get English words like chronology or chronicles from it. And you can think about uh, chronos in terms of a calendar time, the, the flow of time, day to day time, month to month time, year to year time. That would be chronos, the flow of time. So you can think of your calendar. You can think of 2022 so far. Day by day, week by week, month by month. This would be the Kronos point of view. But you could also look at that same calendar and you could note all of the holidays. You could note all of the family birthdays. You could note all of the special days that the church looks like Palm Sunday, Easter, Christmas Eve, Christmas, all the Sundays of Advent, so on. If you're thinking about time in that way, you're thinking about time in terms of Kairos. But there's a further aspect to Kairos, a further significance to the meaning. There are certain days, certain times, in which what happens marks a very significant change in the course of history. And the Greeks recognized this, and they called it cosmic Kairos, remembering that the word cosmic has its original meaning in terms of world or the universe or reality. These are events which actually change and shape the course of history. So since the beginning of the year 2000, we've had several um, cosmic Kairos events, events that have changed the course of history. We can think about 9-11. More recently, uh, we can think about 2020 and the COVID-19 pandemic. And then just this year, we can think about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. These are cosmic Cairo events. These are events which significantly shift and change the course of history. Now, likewise, on this particular day in the history of Israel, the day that Elijah is engaged in this challenge of Mount Carmel. This is a Kairos day of cosmic significance, because on this day, God acts decisively to prove himself to be the true God and to demand the proper allegiance from his wayward people and then to execute judgment against the pagan idolatry of the worship of Baal. And it's that execution of God's judgment, verse 40 of this passage, that we're looking at this morning in this message. Now, we should remind ourselves 
of why we're studying the story, the history of Elijah. It's because of this conviction that the larger issues of our culture and the larger issues, really, of the mission of the church must recognize the presence and even the triumph of paganism within Western culture. No differently than what Dr. Abraham Kuyper said 120 years ago. Do not forget that the fundamental contrast has always been, is still, and will be to the end, Christianity and paganism, the idols or the living God. And for that reason, the theme of this study of the history of Elijah has been crafted around this main concern, that even if paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in our age and in our culture and in many parts of what is called the church, the call to believers, true believers, is always to remain faithful to our mission of who we are and what we are called to do. And in particular, as we've looked at this Kairos moment of God's showdown and defeat of Baal at Mount Carmel, we have kept this particular biblical truth in mind. God does what he does with us, for us, and to us in order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that God is everything he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. So now as we come to the last part of the showdown, we have in verse 40 uh, the last of the five major considerations of this showdown, uh, the consequences of the challenge with the question, who are the ones that die? Now, in last Sunday's message, I addressed the dismay that a, that a number of modern Bible commentators have uh, as they write and comment on Elijah putting the 450 prophets to death. Um, and it, it last, last Sunday in that message, uh, it was my concern to show how wrong-headed uh, their dismay and rejection of what Elijah did uh, actually happens to be. So I went to the New Testament. I went to Romans chapter 1. Uh, we looked at verses 18 to 32 to show that in Paul's exposition of the gospel, his very first point is the utter seriousness of paganism as the direct antithesis to who God is and all that God requires of us, we who bear his image. That is, the faith fully revealed in Christ is fully opposed to paganism, morally and spiritually, and in God's timing and by God's own hand, judicially. So we again return to this text, which I will open up according to this outline. The offense of the consequence, that is to say, why did anyone have to die? Then the significance of the consequences, why did only some actually die? And then the severity of the consequences, why did all not die? So we begin with the first concern, the offense of the consequences. That is to say, people today are offended by what Elijah did. Well, why did anyone have to die? 
they had to die because of the authority of God and his word. God called Elijah to oppose Ahab and Jezebel and the worship of Baal. Remember our introduction to the story of Ahab going back to 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 to 33, where the prophetic writer says this, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, in light of this introduction, we have to be clear. God hates paganism. God hates idolatry. God hates the worship of anything other than God. And God is right to be this way. And God is right to punish this sin with death. Now, to think otherwise is to be convinced that the existence of God does not really matter. That even if God does exist, he doesn't have the right to tell us what to do. And there are people who talk this way and think this way and live this way. We must also be clear. God published his position relative to paganism and idolatry vividly and extensively in the law of Moses and to the people of Israel. So no one in Israel was ever ignorant of the law of God on this matter. And further, in my own preparation this week, uh, I reviewed all of the 613 laws that we find in the laws of Moses. I have a document. All of them are pulled out and they're organized for me. Uh, so it wasn't as difficult as you might think. But going through all of those laws and reading through all of the laws, I took special attention and notice with respect to all of the references to idolatry. There are more than 40 references, more than 40 distinct laws with respect to idolatry. And this passage here, Deuteronomy 12, 29 through chapter 13, 18, is a key passage. In fact, we can anchor Elijah's authorization to judicially execute the 450 prophets of Baal right here. God calls Elijah to do what the law requires, which is to put to death those who are leading the people of God into idolatry themselves. And so a key verse is chapter 18, verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now I want you to consider how strong God's concern is such that it transcends all other human allegiances 
allegiances. So look at verses 6 through 11, Deuteronomy 18. God says, if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. So God is saying as plainly as we can possibly understand it, it doesn't matter who the person is, how close that person is to you relationally, who engages in idolatry. If you are aware of it, you must be the first to act, to expose it, and to eradicate it. I just want to stop here quickly and say this. Reading and knowing this, I'm really glad that I was born in the era of Christ <laughs> rather than under the law. Probably most of us feel this way. Because there's no question how difficult this must have been. And yet, and yet, this call for loyalty to God above all others can be put squarely into the mouth of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 14, when he says, if you love father or mother or sister or brother more than me, you cannot be my disciple. The strict calling to love God, to be loyal to God, to be faithful to God, above all things, is not something that the Old Testament said and the New Testament has dispensed with. We find this utter loyalty stated in the lips of Christ as strongly as it's ever stated under the Old Covenant. But we continue on, coming back to verse 5. This is God's purpose. Why? Why would God hold to this standard? Why would God implement this standard? Why would God want his people to implement the standard? It's to purge this evil from the midst of the people of God. It is for their own sake that this evil of idolatry must be eradicated because pagan worship violates the law of God. It is a worship of the creation rather than the creator, and it is spiritual suicide. To worship as pagans worship is a certain and sure path to everlasting separation from God. It is the pathway to hell. So, why did anyone have to die? 
because these 450 prophets of Baal were teaching and promoting spiritual poison. They were the chief perpetrators of this great offense against God and his people. They were leading the people of Israel down the path to hell. Their death is fully justified. And by the way, do you know where the New Testament quotes and applies this verse 5? So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Well, it's found in the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians. In that chapter, the Apostle Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church because they are knowingly permitting and allowing uh, and tolerating within the fellowship of the church a man who's actually having his father's wife. That's the sin that he's committing. And everybody knows it. And Paul is saying, even among the pagans, such a thing like this isn't really tolerated publicly. So Paul writes this way, beginning at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It, is it not those inside the church that you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So under the new covenant, the church is not a civil power. The church does not bear the sword. The church does not have the power of capital punishment. But Paul uses verse 5, the principle of verse 5, to tell the church not to continue in fellowship or association with any so-called brother who is behaving this way. His presence is a spiritual danger to the people of God. Now, some people draw a distinction between the attitude of Paul and the teachings of Paul and Jesus, which is totally impossible based upon the New Testament itself, because on this concern, the Lord Jesus echoes the same perspective. If you go to the book of Revelation into chapter 2, if you read what he says to the church at Thyatira, Revelation 2, 18 through 29, it mentions the woman Jezebel, a New Testament Jezebel. And so in verse 21, this is what the Lord Jesus says to the church. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. This is because the presence of unrepentant sinners in the midst of the fellowship of believers is a great danger. Now look, we're always going to be a church of sinners. But there's one kind of sin that the church must not tolerate. 
and that is public sin that goes unrepentant. Unrepentant sin is always the evil that destroys the church. So, returning to Elijah. This is why these prophets had to die. For the honor of God's law, for the spiritual welfare of God's people, they had to go. Now next I want to turn to the significance of the consequences. Why did only some actually die? We need to see that there's a significance in God commanding Elijah to execute these 450 prophets, but no others. And the answer here lies with the revelation that God made to Moses when Moses was on Mount Sinai the second time to receive the Ten Commandments the second time. You'll remember that as Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments the first time, uh, the people get impatient with the length of time that Moses is gone, and they call upon Aaron to make a god for them. And that's the whole incident of paganism, the, the golden calf, the worship of the golden calf. Moses comes down off the mountain. When he sees this, he throws the Ten Commandments down, breaks the, breaks the commandments, that is to say, breaks the stone tablets, which is really symbolic of, of what the people of Israel are doing breaking their covenant with God. So now Moses has returned to Mount Sinai. He's with God a second time. But this time Moses has prayed for something. He has prayed that God would show him his glory. And in Exodus 34, God shows Moses his glory in this way. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, here is the most significant revelation of God to Moses. It is the glory of God to show mercy. It is the glory of God to keep his steadfast and unchanging love to thousands. Now, if you note the the textual note with the word thousands there in the Hebrew it means just as easily to a thousand generations and as the context there mentions the third and fourth generations of those who receive a judgment upon their iniquities we ought to be consistent and realize that God is proclaiming his steadfast unchanging love to thousands of generations forgiving iniquity transgression and sin and yet he also says he does not clear the guilty he does not leave the guilty unpunished however look at the great contrast that he presents to Moses he only visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation 
but no further. But he shows his steadfast love and forgiveness to a thousand generations. It's this contrast in the number of generations that is so significant between the abundance of the mercy and grace of God and God's judgment. Now, this is a very powerful message to a culture where blood feuds are never ending, where tribal grudges last for hundreds, even thousands of years. The message here, God does not hold a grudge. His mercy is so much more vast than his judgments. Now, to connect this to something we are all aware of, uh, we today understand that there's a segment of uh, Islam within the Middle East in which the idea of a grudge goes back all the way to the Middle Ages. Muslim apologists for their jihad against the West, the great Satan, America, and Israel, they see this jihad as a legitimate continuation of their jihad against the Crusades of a thousand years ago. Cultures, ancient cultures, always, always were committed to grudges, to holding the next generation and the next generation and the next generation responsible for things that had happened in their day. But that is not our God. He does not hold his anger generation after generation after generation. His anger expires after three or four generations, while his mercy lasts for thousands of generations. Such is his mercy that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And this is why God visited his judgment at Mount Carmel only upon some. This was a significant statement that God is yet merciful toward his wayward people. There are judicial deaths to the 450 prophets, but there is mercy to the thousands of Israelites who had also followed the Baals. They are spared. They are given a season to repent. And finally, we come to the severity of the consequences and to our last question. Why did anyone have to die? So some review is in order. The first question we had asked here is, why did anyone have to die? Or, excuse me, the last question here is, why didn't everyone have to die? This is the last question, the severity of the consequences. Why didn't everyone have to die? So here's some review. We ask the question, why did anyone have to die? Well, it's because the law, the law of God, must honor and protect the honor of God himself and the spiritual welfare of his people. That law had been broken. The penalty is death. No one would have taken God seriously, nor the sin of idolatry seriously, if the prophets of that idolatry had escaped the judgment of the law of God. There was a moral necessity that God act. Now, we might 
point to a similar moral necessity under which, for instance, the Nuremberg trials took place. Not every Nazi soldier or scientist or doctor or government leader, and there were thousands who perpetrated the atrocities of the human experimentations and the genocide of the death camps. Not all of them came to trial or were put to death. In fact, only about 200 of the hundreds and hundreds who were perpetrators were ever tried, and only 161 were ever convicted, and only 37 were ever put to death. And of these 37 who died, they were a small number among the thousands and thousands who deserved to die just as much. People who had been responsible for the death of over 6 million Jews. And no morally sane person ought ever to say that these who were executed did not deserve to die. To keep justice alive, to proclaim to the world that justice actually means something with real consequences, some definite measure of justice had to be sought and had to be accomplished. And similarly, it was so necessary to keep before the wayward people of God the reality of God's law and God's honor and God's justice, it was morally necessary for some measure of God's justice to be done. But then, why did only some actually die? And the only answer there is because of God's mercy. The most guilty, the full force of the law fell on them. But for the rest, Elijah had given to them a merciful invitation. If the Lord, he is God, then serve him. Mercy given, a return to the Lord offered. And the severity of the question? Actually, when you look at the consequences, you have to see the lack of severity. Why did all not die? And the answer is this. This was a Kairos moment in redemptive history. The showdown on Mount Carmel is the climax of God's decisive intervention into the history of Israel. It is God acting to rebuke the apostasy of his wayward people who've been going after other gods and to prove that he is God. He alone is God and he has called his people back to serving him alone. This was the appointed time when God acted. God did not act in this manner again during the remaining 130 years of the northern kingdom's existence before the nation of Assyria came and conquered them and took them into exile. This was a decisive time for the wayward people to choose either to repent and to return to their true God or to harden their hearts against God and to keep seeking the Baals. Thus, although all who followed the prophets, the prophets of Baal deserved to die, and all who ever sin against God deserved to die, the full judgment of God was withheld at this decisive time in Israel's history for the sake of those who would be saved.
And this points then to the ultimate Kairos of redemptive history, the time of Christ. Listen to Paul's presentation of God withholding of judgment for the sake of mercy and salvation in Christ. Listen to what Paul writes, Romans chapter 3, 23 to 26. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, here is where the judgment of death should have fallen upon everyone, for the wages of sin is death. But nevertheless, Paul continues, being justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is, here is God's intervention in Christ, the saving, redemptive, sin-bearing work of Christ to satisfy divine justice, to remove God's wrath offered by God's grace as a free gift to be received by faith, justice and judgment visited upon Christ, mercy, to the believing and repenting sinner. And so Paul continues, this was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And here is why all do not die. For the sake of showing mercy, God has passed over former sins so Paul finishes this way, to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now this is what the showdown at Mount Carmel points to. Elijah's time was a cosmic Kairos time. But we also live in a cosmic Kairos time. We live now in the time of God's mercy. God's great showdown was Mount Golgotha, the hill called Calvary, the altar, the cross on which Jesus was nailed. There the wrath of God descended on God's son, his only son. And in the darkness that filled the world, the son was made sin. He who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him raised from the dead because death could not hold him. He is the Lord of salvation, and his message is this. To all who seek the Lord, or he may be found. To all who call upon him while he is near. To all the wicked who forsake their ways. To all the unrighteous who forsake their unrighteous thoughts. To all those who will return unto the Lord, God will have compassion. God will abundantly pardon. For Jesus says, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. The new covenant made in the blood of Christ that all who believe may have everlasting life. To them, Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Christ. 
Father, we know that the judgment upon our sin is death. And we know that if we do not repent and have faith in you and believe in you and trust in you, that death which is spiritual will be physical, will be eternal. We thank you for the message of Christ. We thank you for salvation in him. We thank you that even in the showdown on Mount Carmel, Almighty God, demonstrating who you were, justice against the prophets of Baal, yet mercy extended to your wayward children should they repent. Father, help us then, Lord God, to understand that the issues of the day are life and death, eternal life and eternal death. And maybe by the grace of the Lord Jesus, I'll follow you faithfully and to love you and to walk with you and to know the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.